Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Crawley, as always. And I do have to apologize. I was not here on Monday. And I I think you kind of knew that, right? You kind of knew it when I said on Friday that I was going to be driving to Myrtle Beach on Friday and then driving back Sunday that uh, probability of a Monday show seemed low. And I had high hopes. And I did make it back in time. I did make it back in time. But I was just not in the right frame of mind to record a pod. It would have been a very bad podcast, which I know you're used to. If you listen to this podcast, (laughs) that doesn't turn you off, (laughs) but it would have been worse than normal. It would have been an even worse podcast. So I was not able to record one. I had a great time in Virginia beach, but wait, did I say Virginia beach? I met Virginia beach. I think that's what I said. Maybe I said that. I don't know if I said Myrtle or Virginia Beach. I don't know why I got Myrtle Beach. You know, I got Myrtle Beach on my on my on my mind. I saw that Dustin Johnson and Paulina Gretzky got married, and Dustin Johnson is from the Myrtle Beach area, and so that's why I got Myrtle Beach on. So maybe I said it. Maybe I did not. You you can go back and rewind and listen. But I went to Virginia Beach four and a half hours. Uh, my company, Atlantic Bay, great company that I work for, had their twenty fifth anniversary party. They it was it was amazing. I don't think I've been to Virginia Beach. In, I want to say since I was, last time I was there, I think I was 14, maybe 15. And we stayed, me and my parents and my sister, we stayed at the Cavalier. And interestingly enough, this time I was staying at the Marriott, which was, is now a part of the Cavalier. It's part of like this giant property they now have. And I actually did not get to go into the Cavalier. The one thing I wanted to do was go, and I just never found the time. Uh, But it was a great time. We had a great party. Good. Uh, like I said, it was great celebrating 25th anniversary of Atlantic Bay. And before we jump into housing news, I didn't want to get to the big story of, well, of yesterday, actually. And that was the, and it has nothing to do with housing. Well, it kind of does. The announcement that Elon Musk is going to officially be buying Twitter, which is kind of funny because was it three weeks ago, a month ago when all of this started and Elon Musk let everyone know about his 9% position in Twitter Everyone said, ah, you know, he's just, they didn't know what his play was, but Elon Musk likes to troll people and everyone assumed that this was some sort of play, but it was not going to lead to him actually buying Twitter. And here we are. (laughs) He has bought Twitter and man, everyone is going crazy. And I bring this up because I love Twitter. I'm a huge fan of Twitter. I used it to my advantage when I was on talk radio. I use it to my advantage here on this podcast. I follow. That's how I really started figuring out what was happening in the housing market is I followed people on Twitter and then they would retweet people and I'd say, Ooh, I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to follow that guy. And then Twitter's algorithm kicked in. And so, yeah, a lot of some of the stories that we talk about here on this program or some of the analysis that we talk about. I get from Twitter. I mean, I've always been a big fan of Twitter and I know a lot of people hate it. And I think that that's a front because people always say, oh, Twitter's awful. These horrible. Every social media platform is what you make it. I've always said this. If you want to be down in the mud, you can be in the mud. If you want to be above it, you can be above it. You can pick who you follow. You can mute people. You can block people. You can do whatever you can. So if all you're seeing is garbage, you want to see the garbage. <laughs> Maybe you need to talk to your subconscious and figure out why it is you want to see that because it is very easy to control. So I, when I was in the political world, I followed nothing but political people. And then when I moved into the real estate world, I unfollowed a lot of the political people. 
And I don't see a lot of politics anymore on Twitter. I mean, I did that. I just stopped following those people. So I don't see them. I don't see their retweets. And slowly it just disappeared where I don't see a lot of it. And so that was proof to me that, yes, you can completely change your social media. I see so much more economic news, finance news, real estate news, mortgage news, because that's what I want to see. And so it is what you make of it. And uh, of course, the big question is what's going to change with Twitter? I don't think anything's going to change in all honesty. I mean, Elon Musk is a clearly an amazing businessman. He's had some big hits with you know, PayPal, obviously Tesla, SpaceX. This is a little different. You know, is he going to make it as free as he's claiming? I don't think so. I mean, you need to have some content moderation. You can't have, you know, it's like free speech, right? We have free speech, but we also at the same time have <laughs> provisions. We have uh, rules when it comes to free speech. You can't say anything, right? You can't threaten people. Uh, you can't incite a riot. I mean, these are things that you cannot do. And so to have that in place, I would say somewhere like Twitter, I think it's good. Now, do they go too far? Yes. And should we have a more uniform policy on Twitter? I think so. It would help end some of the political bias. But I think for the most part, for most people, Twitter's not going to change. Maybe an edit button, <laughs> possibly. Maybe an edit button. We will see if that happens. But uh, yeah, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Who would have thought that that would happen and yeah it's not housing related but it's a big story to me and this is my podcast so i can do it i can do it i kind of actually like to talk about some non-housing stories every every once in a while if they're big enough i think they should make the podcast so we'll see we'll see what happens I, I i'm always changing my mind it's it's one of the curses of ADD, right? It's very difficult to stick with something. So I mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention, but there was a great piece in Bloomberg Monday morning by Connor Sen, someone I found on Twitter, by the way. And now I love reading his columns over at Bloomberg, talking about how rising rates will not be helping with housing affordability. Connor Sen writes in Bloomberg, what we're seeing instead is that the surge in mortgage rates engineered by the Fed is adding to affordability problems. So it stands to reason that the places most affected will be metro areas that were already the least affordable. Now, Sen also makes an important point, one that if you've listened to this podcast, you know all about. This is not 2008. Contrary to the headlines that you may see at certain media outlets, are we in a bubble? Is this a housing bubble? I'm like, it's not. It's not. And if it is, it's not 2008. It's this tiny little little inflated bubble. Certain markets may be more inflated than others, but it is not 2008. Sen writes that there is no broad industry downturn like we have seen before with, say, oil and gas or tech that could have an impact on major metro areas. In fact, he writes, quote, homeowners haven't taken on too much debt. There's no inventory glut. In fact, it's the exact opposite. That would lead to a broad-based downturn. And then there is another factor that could be a wild card in this entire situation. Sen notes that in this post-pandemic migration dynamic of high-income households moving from high-cost to lower-cost areas, essentially what he's talking about is you have people moving from places like California to places like the Midwest, 
which in their eyes is still very affordable, even though there has been some drastic price increases in places like Boise, Idaho. Even with that, if you're from California where home prices are in some places a million dollars on average, yeah, the $600,000 house in Boise, Idaho is a steal or the $400,000 house. Yeah, not a problem. And so it's weird. It's like you're pricing out the locals. And this is an issue that we have here in Wilmington. And I can tell you this as someone, you know, I was on the radio, as I mentioned, I was on talk radio for 10 years and I would have people that would call my radio show and they were convinced that it was building homes that was causing the problem. No, not that it was people moving from you know New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, DC, Northerners moving to the South, which is what you know, I did, even though DC, I should note, was below the Mason-Dixon line. So technically Southerner, <laughs> but it's people moving from up North down here. And they're moving here because once again, housing is insanely expensive up there. They can move down South. And even though the prices are rising, it's still way affordable. And so they're like, yeah, we're going to buy that. And so home prices start rising and then they start rising and then they keep rising. And the only way to deal with that is to build more houses. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of development. My, at least as far as I knew what it was, I've always been a big fan of it because I understand supply and demand. The demand is there. The demand is constant. We need supply. And there are people that legitimately thought they would call my show and they'd say, oh, you know why those people are moving here? So we're building homes. If we stop building homes, they wouldn't move here. <laughs> and they thought that that's what was driving. They thought, I'm not kidding you, that building more homes was driving up the price of homes. <laughs> oh, nimbyism is the absolute worst. Just the absolute worst. So yeah, we need, so places like Boise, the only thing they can do to deal with that and not have locals get priced out is they got to build and keep building in order to deal with that increased demand because you can't shut demand off. I mean, you can't, can't put a fence up, say, hey, you can't move here. Okay, so the people are still moving there. Then you got to do the other situation, which is the supply side. Now, Sen does have good news for this whole situation which unfortunately is rising rates. Home prices still somewhat rising, which means you're pricing a lot of people out of the market. And once again, you're pricing people out of places they, that are desirable. Hot markets are remaining hot. And I can verify that here in Wilmington. So Sen says, if there is any upside for buyers in this current market, it's that because of the affordability problems created by rising mortgage rates are intentional on the Fed's part, they can always reverse those increases if it turns out they've overdone it to the point that it threatens the economy. And yeah, that's true. That's why it is important for the Fed to raise rates because then when they have to lower them, they can. When rates are at zero, it's hard for them to, yes, they can, they can go negative. People forget they can go negative. Europe does that. We would like to not do that. So that's why it's important to raise rates and make sure that we do have that tool for the Fed when they need to use it. So the reality is, is that this slowdown is not helping with the one area that most policymakers are concerned about, and that's affordability. Obviously, the end result at some point will be a pullback in prices 
because as more and more people get priced out of the market, that will reduce demand. Hopefully supply remains somewhat constant and that will then cause prices to slow and then at some point maybe even pull back. But unfortunately in the meantime, as rates rise, it will push more wannabe homeowners off the fence. They can't afford it anymore. It will encourage current homeowners to stay put saying, I'm not going to go buy a home at a five and a half percent rate. We're sitting on a two and three quarter mortgage. And probably more importantly, it will disincentivize home builders because they're going to go, "Uh oh, are people going to really buy this new home we're building when rates are at five and a half, six percent? And so, yeah, unfortunately, in the short term, there's going to be some pain for the people they're trying to help the most, and that is wannabe homeowners. And so the question is, will policymakers be able to withstand some of these trembling headlines for a couple months until they eventually get paid off? And it's hard because a lot of politicians will say, hey, no, 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 we got to do like a first home buyer program or whatever, and then all they're going to do is ramp up demand and that's going to push home prices back up. They're trying to control. I don't mean that like price controls, but they're trying to control and make sure the housing market does not become overinflated. And it, there's going to be some pain for a little while, and they're going to have to prepare themselves to deal with it. But here's the good news. It does look as if we do finally have some data to back up the slowing housing market. It's, it's not a lot. <laughs> and it's, it's still very, very minuscule in the grand scheme of things, but it is there. So according this is according to Redfin's latest report, month over month, home buyer competition fell 1.7 percentage points to 65% in March. This is the first decline in six months. Year-over-year competition was still up from last year when it was 62.2% of buyers were facing competition. So basically, you still have 65% of buyers facing competition when they're buying a home. That's a big number. It's not zero. It's not even under 50%, but it is lower than it was last month. And it was the first decline in six months. That is a sign. Not a big one, but it is there. Now, in case you're wondering, three, where, where's where's the one state where it's almost impossible to build, despite some recent changes in their law? If you said California, you are a winner. And that would explain why three of the top six most competitive markets are in California. San Jose was number one, 79.8% of buyers facing competition. San Diego, uh, was at 78.1% and San Francisco 76.4%. They were at five and six respectively. At number two, Boston, Massachusetts was a close second. Actually, it's 79%. Providence, Rhode Island, number three at 78.3. And then Worcester, Massachusetts at 78.2%. Daryl Fairweather, Redfin chief economist, said they expect competition to drop overcoming months saying, quote, we expect bidding wars to ease further in the coming run 
months, months as rising mortgage rates price more buyers out of the market. That should provide some relief for people who can still afford to buy as they'll likely face fewer competing offers and may no longer need to offer drastically over the asking price in order to win. So I know it's kind of flimsy. You're like, Tyler, that's not the best data that the housing market is starting to slow. Well, because it is Tuesday, that means yesterday was Monday, which means we got some new weekly data from Altos and they have a little bit more data showing that things are starting to cool. So first off, home prices, the median price of a single family home in the US was $420,000. That was the same as the week prior. That was actually the first weekly pause. So the first time home prices have not increased week over week since January. So remember, not a big move, but a move nonetheless. And I will count it as sign that things are slowing. And that's not alone. No, there's, there's more data. The price of new listings stepped down this week to $407,600, or excuse me, $407,600. That is off from last week's peak and right in line with seasonal expectations for new listings. Another example, inventory levels are up. Inventory is up almost 2% to 275,000 single family homes unsold on the market. And one of the reasons, an uptick in days on market. Nationally, we had an uptick in the market time this week shifted up to 28 days, normally a time in the market when you see a decrease. Spring buying season really kind of kicks in and we're actually maybe seeing signs of a slowdown. So I will take it. It does seem as if the rising mortgage rates, I think 5% was the number. I think that was the magic number. Three, of course not. Four, people remember four, but five, we haven't seen five since 2011. That was the shock. That was, I, it was funny. I was at the uh, dentist yesterday, had to get a cavity filled. And luckily, yes, I was healed to the point where I could record this podcast. And the dentist was asking me, are you still doing the radio show? I, I haven't been there obviously a while. <laughs> well, no, I have the last time I just got my teeth cleaned. And so this time I was actually, I talked more time with, with the dentist. And so she asked if I was still doing the radio show. I said, no, no, I'm actually in mortgages. And um, they said, Oh, busy. And I said, well, it's, it's, it's starting to slow down a little bit. And I said, 5% rates will do that. And they said, Ooh, she said, is that where rates are? It's <laughs> like, yeah. So it'll be kind of a sticker shock. And I think that's going to be a bigger impact. People haven't seen them in 10 years. And so I think five was the magic number. So we are, and this is the way it should work. You don't want to see a crash. You want to see a gradual slowdown. And this could be the beginning. We will see. All right, you guys enjoy your Tuesday. We'll be back here tomorrow for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.